wants to hear the sermon today, um, which is nice for me. Uh, it's also, uh, it's the challenges up there. It's like, what is she putting it on? Is it going out to all the world or probably not? And if it was, who would be listening? Um, well, it was nice having those two readings together this morning, actually, to hear what uh, Jonathan read and what uh, what Sylvia read about. In the beginning was this word that was created before all things. And yet that, that reading from Proverbs is about wisdom, this thing that also is sort of ancient and eternal. Um, and we have both these things sort of going on at once. Now, now Proverbs' uh, wisdom is personified as a woman, as many of you know, whereas this word that becomes flesh in Jesus is, is obviously a male, as all of us know. But there's this these two things going on here. But the, the wisdom in Proverbs is never told to be on the ground in the world. To be working itself out in the world, but there we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But but before we started today, I wanted to say that we're starting our sermon series. We try to go from the first Sunday of the year all the way to Easter in one gospel. And so this year, the gospel is the Gospel of John. So that's why we're starting at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and we're going to move through it all. Now, one of my favorite parts about the Gospel of John, though, is is we don't know exactly what the logic was, but we do know from Luke. Um, but like, why were these things written? What John is very clear is that this was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So John's gospel is almost written backwards to front. He starts with the truth of the risen Christ, and then wants to make that evident to you so that you too can believe in the, in the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus is God's Son. And so John has this clear, but before we started, I wanted to do a little thing on uh, which gospel starts this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is written in Isaiah the prophet. Who thinks it was Matthew? Who thinks it was Mark? Then nobody's playing this game. I'm just playing it by myself. I know the answers. It's not going to be fun. Uh, all right, we'll start again. Who thinks it's Matthew? Which gospel starts this way? Sorry, maybe I'm not good at trivia. This is trivia fail by Matt. Uh, the question is, which gospel starts this way? We'll do all four. So which gospel starts with, in the beginning, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Matthew. No votes. Luke. So a couple of votes. Mark. Lots of votes. John we read, so we're not actually going to read John. So the answer for this one is Mark. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. This is written in Isaiah the prophet. Um, yeah, David's feeling good that he got that one. Uh, Kim will ask you what you did at home. Um, so, yeah, this is how Mark starts. And Mark tells us something about the way he's going to tell his gospel in these opening words. That this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. And he connects it right back to Isaiah. As many of you know, Mark starts with, with we did Mark last year, funny enough. Mark starts with no uh, birth material, no um, material about Jesus growing up, no material. It starts with John the Baptist right after the scene and then full-grown Jesus out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Mark starts fast. This one, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Uh, Mark or Matthew, right? It's, or Luke and Matthew is what we have left. Matthew. 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 Okay. Uh, Luke. Half people have quit already. Um, uh, the answer for this one is Matthew. Nobody voted for Luke, but 90% of people didn't vote. It's like an American election now, because most people don't vote. Um, but they rule the people who do vote. 
Um, so this is the genealogy of the Messiah, which is which is something that Mark or Matthew is going to take seriously in his Gospels, is who is this person as he stretches back to Israel as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew goes right into this long sort of uh, genealogy that starts with Abraham and goes all the way up to, to David. Joseph, uh, the father of Jesus. And so that's sort of where Matthew starts. Matthew does have some of the birth material, um, but not as much as, as this one does. So this is our last one. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Everybody knows this one because it's the last choice remaining, the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke attempts to draw up an quarterly account of all that has happened. Now, the reason why I did this is because these three Gospels are what they call sort of the synoptic Gospels, which is a phrase that I don't know why they use synoptic, but it means similar. These Gospels are very similar, so much so that Mark contains almost 80%, or Matthew contains almost 80% of the exact Greek words that are used in Mark. This is why the early church, it was like, why do you want to read Mark? We're going to copy down one of them, we're going to copy down Matthew. And so we don't have as much manuscripts of Mark, because if you're going to copy it down once, you might as well do the whole thing, the longest one that you can get, not the shorter one, right? And so Mark is much shorter. Matthew contains almost all of Mark, and then Luke contains most of Matthew, most of Mark, and then some material on his own. So those three Gospels tell a very similar story. They have the same overarching plot. They both have John the Baptist. They both have Jesus in the wilderness. They both have these scenes. All three of those have the transfiguration scene. Um, those three have shorter resurrection appearances than John. And so these three Gospels, when we read these three Gospels, we see things that are very similar. One of the challenges for this sermon series is John is like, it's an apple, an apple, an apple, and a banana. Like, John is much different than the others. Now, it's hard for us to see that because most of us read Scripture either in snippets, like, oh, I'm just going to look up this verse, this story, this moment, or we read it straight through, and so the continuing of it just kind of keeps pushing, right? But if you were really just to sit and to read Mark and then read and compare it to Matthew, or if you buy, they used to sell gospel harmonies, which have kind of fallen out of favor, which was we put all the gospels in order that we think the events happened, and then they always had, and then John. <laughs> they could do it with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but when they got to John, they were like, and then we tacked on John at the end, because it made no sense to try and do the same thing with John, given his how different he is from the others. And this is one of the, the amazing parts, I think, about the Bible, is the Bible doesn't try to whitewash this. I mean, they could have said, we're just not going to put John in the Bible. It's too different, right? But what they wanted to give us was this sort of different gospel a sort of different way of telling the story. Now, soon, there's an eagle in your bulletin this week, if you, if you didn't notice, which is an odd thing, of course. Um, why is there an eagle named John in my bulletin? Um, the, the early church, early on, took each of the four animals that appear in the beginning of Ezekiel in the book of Re Revelation and said, let's apply one of them to each of the gospel writings. And so uh, John is the eagle, uh, so the eagle's name is not John. That's just for front. Uh, Luke is an ox uh, that appears in that scene. Mark, as you remember from last year, we had the, the, the picture of it up is the lion. And then Jonathan loves to point out Matthew's just a dude. Yeah. He's not an animal. Um, and Chris is making us a nice uh, thing to have in there uh, so that we can put it up. 
uh, when we tackle gospel to have this. But Marx's or John's is most critical, and the quote on the back of the bulletin kind of hits this, is that he gives this bird-eye view of what's happening in Jesus. He gives this top-down uh, story of how Jesus is working out in the world, how this is coming to be. And so this quote in the back, um, if John has been described as the pearl of great price among the New Testament writings, then one must say the prologue, these verses 1 through 18, is the pearl within the gospel. If for comparison of Augustine and Christendom's exegesis, the prologue points out that both church fathers held that it was beyond the power of man to speak as John does in the prologue. The choice of the eagle as the symbol of John the evangelist was largely determined by the celestial flights of the opening lines of the gospel. That's Raymond Brown writing in the 1950s about what's going on here. But I love that uh, it's impossible for man to speak as John does at the opening of his gospel. And yet here I am preaching on the opening of John's gospel. He sets it up well for you, right? Um, that we move into the prologue. And this is where this gospel sort of kicks off. Now there's two things that, that one didn't go forward. Mm -hmm. no, now it is, right? Yes. There's, there's one thing that I want to start with is this phrase word, which is that's Greek word on top. And then below that is the word logos, which most of us are familiar with. What we see as word in John 1 is this word logos, right? And there are three sort of ways we can apply this word logos, actually four. The first is, and, and it's critical to get this, that the logos becomes flesh. The word becomes flesh in the opening of John's gospel. This is the exciting, huge news that John starts with. Is that in the beginning, what was the word, and the word was with God, and the word is God. And so John has this idea of saying that this logos thing is God. And it takes up residency in the world. Eugene Peterson, in one of the most popular parts of the message to quote, says that the, that the word moved into the neighborhood. The Greek word is, is similar to synagogue, that the, or to temple, that the God tabernacled among us, that God pitched a tent, that God stayed in the world, that God came near to us. This word does that. And so the ways to take the word logos, well, the first one, given the Old Testament, is to say that the Torah became flesh. What we're doing during the summer is the first five books, is that the Torah became flesh. That one seems like a possible interpretation for a Jew, but not the most likely. Uh, the second one is to say that, um, that God's word becomes flesh, which is sort of what we hear in English. But when you look at the word of God in the Old Testament, what do we see in the, in the Genesis account of creation? And very beginning of the Bible, that the Word of God creates. In the psalm that Buford read, it's the Word of God that creates. It's the Word of God that judges. It's the Word of God that goes forth in Isaiah. It's the Word of God that is sort of the vocalization of God. One person put it this way this week that I was reading, is that getting somebody's inmost thoughts is through words. It's through vocalization. So what happens in Jesus is... God gets personal in revealing who he is to us in Jesus, that he, he lets his thoughts out there in word, right? So word is creative, word is personal, word is um, uh, distinct in so many ways, and this is what comes out in the opening of John's gospel. The next way to take it is the way that many of the Greeks would have taken it. Um, and this is a quote from Stephen Hawking. 
However, if we discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable by everyone. This is complete theory of the universe, uh, not just by a few scientists. Then we shall all be philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people. Be, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is why why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. That's Stephen Hawking's in The Brief History of Time, which was turned into a movie and then a book about the movie, and that sounds horrible to me. Um, but what he's saying here is that if we could find a governing principle of all the universe on how it was created, not only should it be accessible to everyone, which I think is super interesting, this is one of the brightest minds we've had, he says that if we find this principle, it should become easy knowledge among all of us. Which when you think about the word becoming flesh as this governing principle, this logos becoming flesh, this is what that means. And so in the ancient world, you'll find somebody in, in the ancient world saying, is there not anything that doesn't change or fade? And Heraclitus, a guy who I don't know much about, responded, the logos is that. And so all the way from that's 5 BC, 500 BC to uh, this was written in the 60s, I believe, people have said the governing principle of all that exists is this word akin to what we would call logos. And to know the logos, to know the governing principle on how all things function, would be to know sort of the mind of God. It would be to know the unchanging things. It would be to know that. So that's both an ancient answer and a modern answer. The final sort of word we have for logos, which is the one that we sort of hit on today in that reading that Jonathan read for us, is wisdom. There's an idea in the first chapter of John's Gospel that it's wisdom that becomes incarnate. And so Jews who are radically monotheists have this story in Proverbs of this creation of another being that's with God there in the beginning. And what John does is takes that, that concept and applies it to Jesus as he says, it's as if that thing became flesh. If you wanted to know what that wisdom looked like, you would look at Jesus. So wisdom is the thing that sort of is there at creation, participates in creation. And so you'll see this in the way that John talks about creation here too, at the beginning, is that through Jesus all things were created, is that Logos applies to this wisdom thing as well. So we have four different ways to be, sort of begin to understand the start of this gospel. But what I wanted to do for the last time we have is sort of walk through the gospel in sort of the segments it takes up. And I'll tell you which verses we're at. But we're going to look at it as if it were a poem with stanzas. And so the first opening part of this is the word in pre-creation, which is the long view. This is, this is the first, uh, let me just double check, the first two verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The one was in the beginning with God. This is the big view. This is the long view. This is everything that, that sort of begins. Now, is anybody a fan of the Marvel movies? I don't have an engaged audience today. Kim, you're raising your hand. Some fans of the... Uh, Don's a fan of the Marvel movies. All right. If you... if uh, Like two years ago, I saw if you wanted to watch all the Marvel movie scenes in chronological order, you'd have to start with some obscure scene in Thor, the one that nobody saw, The Dark World, and then change the DVD, I think, 147 times to get the, all the scenes in chronological order to watch it. Somebody did that, of course, because we live in 21st century North America and we have time uh, and energy to 
I don't want to judge anybody, but waste on a, on a project like that. Um, that, that. So you don't start with the first movie that came out, which is apparently Iron Man, and you don't start with the first one chronologically, which is the one about Captain America. I had to look this all up. Uh, you would start with some weird scene in Thor, Dark World. See, somebody knows. Sorry. Uh, um, they're gauging movies. But this is kind of what John is doing here. In the beginning was the word. We know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But if you want to know, if you were to put the Bible with the New Testament in complete chronological order, change books back and forth, back and forth, it's perhaps that you would start with this one. You wouldn't start with Genesis 1. You would start with in the beginning, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John jumps back before the creation of all things. He jumps to this, this thing that existed with God before time began, before that there was something there, was this relationship between these two beings, this Word and this God. The Spirit will get into it later, but God's beginning with this Trinitarian sort of grounding of what God is. God is both Father and Word at this moment, whose Son comes into the world. And so we jump way back to a weird scene in Thor, Dark World. <laughs> um, somebody, you saw it? Is that any good? Okay. So check out Thor, Dark World if you have not seen it yet. And also the opening of the Gospel of John. Um, <laughs> one of those I've sold more copies of the Bible. Um, all right, so it be in the that's the the long view. The next view is the big picture. Uh, this is verses three through five. All things were made through him, and apart from him, not a thing single thing was made. When what has been made was in union with him, there was life. And this life was the light of the human race. And the light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not put it out. This second stanza we call the word from creation to cross, from cross to resurrection. This is the big picture of what God does in humanity. So we have that long view that jumps from before Genesis into the eternal truths of who God is to this big picture of God's plan among us. And this one <coughs> struck me. This comes from this movement thing sort of comes from Frederick Dale Bruner. But this one struck me because I never noticed that the cross and resurrection are here mentioned at the beginning of John's gospel. That the light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not put it out. That as the light comes into the world and takes up residency in the world, that Christ is this one who is light who comes, and, and truth is light in this gospel. That light comes and takes residency in this place. What happens is, is we as humans... And, in the world, in the universe, tries to dampen it, tries to put it out. It's almost as if the fire and glory of God got too close to us, and the only thing we knew how to do was kill it. And so what happens in this movement is that we decide to extinguish the light. It's big news here, right? Because the creator of all things, which it says, has taken up residency in the world, and the darkness tried to comprehend it, but instead put it out. Cross is mentioned here right at the start. And what I like about this is that the darkness, uh, the light still shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not able to accomplish putting it out. 
I've referenced this once before, but there's this idea of total dark, which is very hard to achieve. To go into total dark, you basically have to go into deep caves in the ocean or down, way down into the earth to achieve where there is no light. And I was reading about it this week. A guy went there and he said, I put my hand in front of my face and it was as if I were seeing my hand because my my brain, because your arm is connected to your hand, was showing the light fixtures of what thought would be there, even though it was impossible to see something. That, that in that place of total darkness, that even his brain was trying to fire up that, like, I know a hand is there because it doesn't really exist for us. But the point being is if there's a little bit of light, then it's not totally dark. And one of the reasons I love this truth is because as dark as the world may seem, it's as dark as our opportunities may be. If there's a little bit of light, you can't say it's dark in the total dark way. Any bit of light makes it impossible for it to be totally dark. I think this is a deep truth for us to know that as, as we experience darkness, that if there's a little light hidden, then the darkness has not won and the darkness has not extinguished the light. The next stanza is the word of John the... John the Witness, a close picture. It's interesting that John the Baptist is not called John the Baptist in John's gospel, but he's called John the Witness, one who witnesses to this light, points to this light, and is always trying to bring people to this light, this person. John witnesses to this thing. And this, this stanza, which goes, the man was sent from God whose name was John. He came to be a witness to the light so that all might come to believe through him. He himself was not the light. No, he came to be bear witness to the light. It's verses 6 through 8. John comes as one who bears witness to this light, who tries to make it evident to us that this is God's light here in the world. There's this one of those weird parts of this, is that we're telling this story, we're only on the third chapter, and we've moved from before time began to God's big picture of rescue in Jesus, to John, just this guy who witnesses to the light. God intends to use human things, normal humans, humans among us, to point people to the light that comes in Christ Jesus, to point people to the light that they are not. And to be a witness is to, is to have it sort of appear behind you, is for people to be able to see something beyond you, that, that, that you're a witness to something, to put your life at stake. That's a quote. We'll get back to that if we have time. The word of revelation to the unwelcoming world. This is the sad picture, verses 9 through 11. The true light which enlightens every human being was in the process of coming into the world. He was already in the world, of course, the world that was made through him, but the world did not recognize him in creation, so he came down into his own human home but his family of human beings did not welcome him. This is the sad picture of what happens when the light comes into the world, is that Christ comes into his own home, and yet we act as if we did not recognize him. When Christ comes into the universe, we act as if it's like not there. It doesn't recognize, it doesn't welcome him, it doesn't know that this is the way. And what Christ, I like the way that this translation puts it, is coming to us as home. And not only that, that which he's been in forever because he creates and sustains it all. That he is the one who's just coming back to his place. And the people come down, and the people don't recognize him, which brings us to this next movement, which is the glad picture. But whoever did welcome him, to him he gave the privilege of becoming the very children of God, 
to those who are simply believing and trusting themselves to him, his person. They were born children of God, not by confluence of bloods, nor by willpower of flesh, nor by the willpower of a strong person, but by the sole power of God. This is the word of welcome. That despite the fact that most of the world did not recognize him, that the darkness tried to put out the light, what happens is, is there are people, Nicodemus we think is one of them early in the gospel, aside from John, who welcome the light, and through that become children of God. They become sons and daughters of God. This is the glad picture of the changing work of God. And here we find that we're brought into what God has done in the world. The closest, and I think the most important picture of all, the word became flesh. And so the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, and we saw his glory. It was like the glory of an only son from a father, full of grace and truth. So the word, the logos, the wisdom, the governing principle of all things, takes on flesh, which is John challenging this world that exists in. Flesh is like a throwaway thing. It's like um, uh, he takes on the, the lid, well, that takes on the, the form of a soda can. You don't reuse your soda can. You're lucky if you recycle it. And God knows what happens with it then. Same guy picks up my recycling and my garbage in my hometown. Um, but uh, it's like he takes on, in the ancient world, the form of something that's throwaway for them. The huge news is that the Logos takes on the form of flesh, which is a way of redeeming and restoring the dignity to flesh. In this world, it's seen as something that's passing, as something that you would just uh, eventually be elites from, a chore to have. And what John says is that this divine thing, this Son of God, comes and takes on the life of something that we would just toss off if we could. The word of John, the witness again. John bears witness to him, and we can still hear him crying and saying, this is the one I was telling you about when I said the one coming after me as my successor actually ranks above me as my superior because he came he came way before me as my predecessor. John here again names this relationship to him. Although he comes first, Jesus comes first in the grand scheme of things. And then the word of the grateful church. Because out of his fullness we have all received one grace after another grace. For while the law was given through Moses, deep grace and deep truth came through Jesus Messiah. And what happens here, this is where it says, um, uh, hang on. This is where we show up in here, is that we've become something. We, we join in God's work. The word of the church shows up in this segment, is that we become something through this. Because we have all received one grace. Because we have received deep grace and deep truth through Jesus. This is the truth that comes to us in this part. And the last one, which is, which is the, the picture itself, and this is his way of translating, God, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, whose being is back at the heart of God. He came down and explained to God. See, what he's saying here is that God, nobody has ever seen God is the truth of the scriptures. But what Jesus is going to confront in the Gospel of John is people will say to him, and he says, I'm the one who's come from the Father. 
I'm the one who's come from the right side of God. I'm the one who's seen God, and I'm the one making evident the works of God in the world. This is the truth of Jesus Christ in the flesh, is that he shows us the light of which is God. And this is the challenge of seeing this, of holding this as he takes on the form of flesh, is that he's the one making God evident to us in the world. That he came down from heaven. And what it says is, is a phrase that I've often missed, is that he's back at the bosom of God, is the, is the correct Greek phrase of that. He's back at the heart of God. He's back at the chest of God. What happens in this prologue to John is John sort of lays out the whole picture. Luke, Matthew, Mark, you may be wondering where this story is going while you're reading it. In John, he's saying, this one, who you might know as the dead Jew, or as the dead Messiah, is back in the heart of the Father of God. And that is where he resides today. I won't go back to the quote. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the witness you've given us to your life in the Gospel of John. That your word whether it be vocal, whether it be wisdom, whether it be the logic which governs the whole universe, has come and taken on the form of flesh in the world so that you might enlighten our lives and teach us and bring us into the knowledge of your truth. Rescue us from darkness. God, as we go through John's gospel, we're here of the advocate, the paraclete, the counselor, your spirit, who comes to us now, who makes you as real to us as you were in the flesh. God, may your spirit enter into our lives and enliven our lives. May your spirit bring light and life into our place. And may we be transformed through a connection to you, which was there at the beginning. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.